0: at greenlight.com slash ACAST.
1: Welcome to Black and Gay Back in the Day. We're bringing to life the archive of images of black LGBTQ plus life in Britain from the 1970s to the early noughties.
0: Brown skin.
1: I'm Mark Thompson. I'm an activist and health promotion specialist, and I built this archive with the journalist and writer, Jason Okendaya. In this episode, we are looking at a photograph that shines a light on creativity and art. A black and white photograph shows a man standing, leaning on a piano with his left arm. He looks welcoming in black leather shoes, white socks, tailored pinstripe trousers, a thick studded belt, a black vest and a black leather fetish cap. He has leather studded straps around his neck, chest, right bicep and both wrists and is holding a crystal glass with a drink in it. There is another drink resting on the piano and he is looking directly into the camera. We know the man to be a Jammu ex, and the photograph is taken in his hometown of Huddersfield in 1983. Our ways of expressing ourselves are so often linked to our identity as people and influenced by who we are and what is happening in the world around us. In this episode, multidisciplinary artist Jacob V. Joyce is taking the reins as they guide us through amplifying our histories whilst nourishing new queer and anti colonial narratives today.
0: Wow, this is a really beautiful picture. Ajamu looks incredibly cute. I love the African fans behind him, the little hanging plant. The fact that he's not just wearing kind of leather and spikes and, you know, a studded belt and studded hat. But there's also a really palpable softness in the image as well, in his eyes and his expression. And the fact that his finger, his index finger is pointed directly down, kind of creating a line of power all the way down to his shoes and his feet, which are together. It makes me think of the magician tarot card, him channeling an energy up through the earth. And perhaps I'm getting the magician from it because I know Ajamu and I know his work and I know that it is an alchemical process which kind of plays with power and sensuality and the erotic and suspense and all these things and, and transforms it into something beautiful, which is, you know, that's what a magician does. So... It's just a really beautiful picture. The first thing I think is just how stunning a Jammu is and just what a beautiful person they are. My name is Jacob V. Joyce. I am an artist and a researcher looking into the histories of black arts education. My work is very queer and very anti-colonial. I think I want to ask Ajamu about the importance of play and sensuality in his work because Ajamu has been kind of like a mentor to me at different times in my creative practice. And one of the questions that he has asked to me about my work is, where is the sensuality? Because I'm, a, I'm an artist who makes anti-colonial, queer, political work. And sometimes... You can forget the importance of playfulness, and and actually, when I think about my work over the last like eight years, it's all very playful, and and I try to kind of keep that sensuality at the forefront. And I think that's definitely been encouraged by Ajamu. So I kind of want to flip that back on its head and ask him what the importance of play and sensuality is in his work, and maybe also how that comes into his process as an archivist, because obviously Ajami isn't just an artist, he's also one of the founders of the Ruckus Archive, which is the archive of black and brown queer history in the UK. It's probably not the exact technical term for it, but the Ruckus Archive is, is something like that. It's an archive of black and brown lesbian and gay ephemera and documents and stuff. So I'd like to ask him how important play is in his process as an archivist and how important sensuality is is to him when he's moving through archives or working with archives. So we're standing outside 198 Gallery on Railton Road. We're about to go in and speak to Ajamu, right by the mural which I painted with Rad Mural Cooperative in 2021, which features Olive Morris um, and Pearl Alcott and Rotimi Fanekodi, and lots of other black history, some of them queer, some of them just radical. So this is a stunning picture of you um, that we're looking at. And there's so much in it that I think is potent but but what is where was this picture taken? can you tell tell me like what what's going on
2: um so the picture was I'm taken around nineteen eighty one in Huddersfield. I'm kind of almost coming out around this period in terms of my sexuality, so I'm eighty three and the club that I was going to was the Gemini Club. I'm mainly white men, very few black men and And the dress code was like like, jeans, white t shirts, and the music around this time was like groups like the Boys Town Gang. My group that I was kind of obsessed by was Subcell and Marketing Mambas, punks and rockers, whatever. That's what I was just playing around with in terms of my dress sense. And I'm coming from a very small town that had very fixed ideas around masculinity and gender and race. And so basically, I then wasn't. One of those black guys who looked or acted in a certain way, yeah, because then I was just dressing and working things through through my dress sense, mm-hmm. yeah. And the magazines then I was then reading was more your um alternative fashion lifestyle magazine that they came out of London. So then I was just working things through through my dress sense, Either my musical tastes then and now is still like extremely diverse as well, so I could then be...
0: I mean, I noticed as well that there's some like African fans on the wall behind you.
2: Yes, yeah, So the um, image then was um, taken in the house of a photographer friend, Keith Hardy. So what we see is design interesting kind of juxtapositions mm-hmm. around what I'm wearing and then some of the um, objects. On the wall, and I'm, for me, I kind of wanted them to present almost a very soft image yeah. around black masculinity or the black body, is because then the actual kind of I'm, things I'm wearing are also culturally loaded, pol- politically loaded, in terms of like I'm SM, I'm verging on Kingston, so and once again, I'm just playing around with all of that stuff. I guess in a kind of a naive kind of a way, and then decades later, all these things then real surface in terms of my working is because then i don't have a language to articulate mm-hmm. S- some of the ideas all the things i was more feeling um at that point um
0: that makes sense i mean you say it's it's naive but it, it does look very kind of like intentional and and i'm interested to know do you at this period of time so you said it was 1983 um and you're quite young in the picture but like would you at this time have called yourself an artist or was it more that your your dress sense and your kind of your 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 music and your political leanings were the where the creativity was manifesting or were you?
2: I kind of knew knew from then on um, I wanted to be creative I'm then my um, idea of an artist was a painter mm-hmm. right yeah and so actually photography was kind of my route into kind of being creative right and so I'm and that's how that I'm um, journey kind of started I kind of was one of these kids. If something was kind of right now, whether it was post-punk, New Wave or whatever, I was in it. Two mm-hmm. told me that I was in it. And then I kind of would walk around as if I've always been in it and the first. <laughs> so then and that was my kind of way that I was in town. And so my family never says, you know, don't dress like that or you can't. So then that's why I kind of have this attitude even now. It's because those who've been in my corner, when I I'm, was I'm just working things through, I've always been there. Even, even now, when I'm clear about certain things, they're still there. So then, more so than everything else, it's my family, I think,
0: has grounded me to be who I think I could be. That makes sense. Yeah, I think that's not to be underestimated. Because I feel like when you are allowed to know yourself and allowed to kind of make those, those experimental uh, leaps into yourself, then what happens is that people kind of can't question it because they can see that you know yourself. Yes. You know when it, it's so palpable when somebody knows themselves. I mean, as as like a non-binary person that's like always been playing with gender since I was very young. I feel like people are less likely to say something if you are confident with with who you are and how you look. You know,
2: and i um, sometimes then people then do question you if you're confident especially if you are perceived, perceived to be a black male mm-hmm. is then that the confidence is as seen as arrogance yeah so then once again actually I think that people also question you more because you are confident
0: yeah definitely definitely and it, but then I also feel like that's maybe I'm maybe I'm over but I also feel like it's because you represent something to them which they they secretly want to know more about and they're kind of like pushing you and pushing you and pushing you to be like, how yeah. how are you so free? Do you know what yeah. I mean? Maybe that, because I grew up in London and, and right. went to a predominantly black primary school, predominantly black sec- secondary school and have always been around, you know, uh, in, in black communities. And, and I feel like, I don't know, I feel like there's a flirtation in the, in the abuse. <laughs> Maybe I'm just romanticising it unnecessarily, but... I think that I, across the board, I think that
2: what people have problems with is if you are an individual. Yeah. I think that's what scares people. It was actually, I think that is probably easier to follow because then there's also a price that you pay if you don't follow. And I think, yes, you can be confident in terms of who you are in a small town. And at the same time, and you could then be isolated because of that confidence in the small town. And then you are then bringing sexuality and gender into the conversation. So yes, you are confident, but then the culture
0: you're in then also isolates you. Definitely. You've got the, you know, being, being in a small town, then you've got the double kind of, you know, you're not just an anomaly because you are playing with fashion and gender and stuff, but you're also an anomaly because you're a black person in, in a place where people aren't used to seeing black people. And I think that's something that persists even today when people go to you know out of the big cities in the UK. Yes, yes. You are also mm-hmm. a anomaly in terms of black culture mm-hmm. and
2: white culture too. Yeah, it because it's, it because actually they can't process your kind of blackness mm-hmm. and they can't process your kind of queerness mm-hmm. and then they can't process your kind of Britishness as well. Mm-hmm. I think that it's the the those freaks that they're trying to normalize <laughs> come back come back where are you going and that's and I think that's what happens in even in large towns because then large towns are also made up of these very small
0: concrete as well yeah and you know I, f- I feel like your work and also the work of Ratimi Fane Cody and also the work of Ingrid Pollard and also the work of um, Maud Salter you kind of are all playing with the tension of that that or oh, but you don't. you how are you? This and this. You know how are you? How how is you? How are you soft, but also like you know uh, sexual? How are you kind of black, but also in the countryside? How are you? You know exuding this kind of confidence and opulence, but I don't perceive you as someone who belongs here or should feel that way. you talk a bit about the journey like from this person in, the, in this photo who you wouldn't call an artist to you becoming an artist and not just an artist but also like a kind of you know an archivist and 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 a really successful artist that means a lot to a lot of people oh that's a big question <laughs> I there've been multiple
2: journeys I'm I, I think for me there's I'm um, certain lack of key moments a key moment was I'm um, learning photography um in 1987 I went to Leeds Kingston College and the September there was an event that was run by Maud Salter Mm -hmm. David A. Bailey was I'm doing a talk around black photography Mm -hmm. that that was the September and Maud was just awesome um I have to Admit that I was afraid of Maud. <laughs> Why were you afraid of her? It's because I'm, 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 i Maud was just formidable, right? It, it was just this presence, and yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, it, it's that that presence and that confidence. And Maud was stunning, and but there was a clarity that she had about who she was, and then I was not that confident then. Mm-hmm. So then I was intimidated by Maud Salter.
0: Were you also empowered to see like a black queer artist oh, with yes. that level of confidence? Definitely, definitely. And then the,
2: and then the October, two things happened that was seminal. There was a small portfolio in Gay Times of Rotimi's work. Mm-hmm. So this, this, and then was the first time I'm seeing a, a black queer artist who's doing work around
0: nudes. Which which publication was Rotimi's work in? Gay Times. In the Gay Times, okay. And so that was October. And then October, then
2: also was then the first National Black Games Conference that I came to from Leeds because I was on I Leeds was, I was then. So these things were just like I um, happening. And um, this this was the, the first time then that I was able then to put race and sexuality in the same space. Because right. Until then, they were just kind of separate. Right. And then by the January 88th, I had dropped out of college. And during my time at I'm, Leeds Kids to college, I was having tensions with my lecturer and so his thing was uh, around technique and then I had this vague idea that photography had to do something it should be political or cultural but it can change lives and so that's what I was thinking
0: oh thank god so that was came from one of your teachers no no no
2: I'm that was the intention I was having with one of my lecturers and then the head says okay I think that you should leave Kingston College and the follow this thing that you think photography is.
0: So you were the one who were pushing
2: it to be something political. Well, I'm, I just had this idea that it had to do something.
0: A hundred percent. Right. Yeah, right. no. It,
2: it, and... it, it, yeah, so basically we're talking, I'm just exploring photography. Right. It's, it's, I'm 87. It's still way ahead of what I then did years later. And then, and the key was then Andy Winterburn, who was in the head, gave me two books Roland Barthes, Camilo Cider, mm-hmm. and Franz Fanon, Black Skin, White Mask. Wow. And I'm like, well, you know, thank you very much. Bro. <laughs> <laughs> this means nothing, basically.
0: Right. And then I'm in London, and then years later, I'm like, ah, yeah, okay. I still haven't read either of those books, but like, yeah, I've dipped into them. Yeah. I know that they are important. Years, so
2: basically, years later, I'm like, ah, that's what he was telling me that actually, you're onto something. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I think then about. 1992, 93, I either went back up to Leeds to say hi, how are you doing, or whatever. And then he says, I mean no everybody who was in the course that I was on completed the course. I but not one of them are doing photography. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. So once again, that 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 hunch that 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 I had then is what's like a carried me through that photography. It's got to do something in the world mm-hmm. and then and then from there they brought race and sexuality and gender and then because then i then also then lived in Brixton in Brixton Housing Co-op living with Sonia Boyce and then there's Dergar richards and Timmy and there's and, and then these artists activists coming through the house that we lived in as mm. well that's then how their um, ideas they started trying to try and brew and then just carving out my kind of Space. That's so interesting. Art world.
0: I love that kind of that. It was it was art cultivated or nourished this thing in you of like, no, it needs to be political. It needs to be it needs to be against. I guess I feel like is implied from what you're saying, like against oppression. Like it needs to be maybe not just against actually because your work is never just against. It's also doing more than just like. I'm actually kind
2: of not necessarily
0: against. I think I'm more concerned about what I'm for. Mm. Yeah,
2: because because I think that's far more empowering for me as an artist. I try not to get into this binary yeah. framework around these these um ideas and um issues, and so on. I think for me, photography for me is about presenting a particular kind of world view, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and that world view is at one point my world view. Yeah, and. And then at the same time, it still speaks to lots of other people as well. And so, actually, photography has always been the medium for me to work through a whole range of kind of
0: ideas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I see in your work is, you know, it's not positioning itself as against this, and it's not trying to defend itself. It's not, you know, exerting all that energy. There is a much more there's a there's a different kind of energy at play, which is. Yeah which is about intimacy and vulnerability. And I'm really interested, and obviously sensuality. So you founded The Ruckus Archive with Topher Campbell. Yes. Can you tell us what that Ruckus Archive is? The Ruckus Archive,
2: I was co-founded in 2005 with my partner in crime, Topher Campbell. Ruckus is a derivative of the word raucous and which I mean to create a fuss, to create a noise. And then ruckus is also a rhyme, African American porn star. Yeah. And the archive I'm kind of started is because Massafotofa just wanted to have a different conversation that brought in cultural production and black queer culture production in the context of the UK. Yeah. A lot of conversations start from a victim based narrative. Mm -hmm. And so, actually, I'm saying, while we are having these bad experiences, culturally, politically, whatever, we've also been creating work as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, the archive covers a 40 plus year time frame. It includes magazines and books and journals of flyers and posters, vinyl, anything around a black British queer experience. And the archive is still. Predominantly a first generation Black British born, so, so on basis what we're talking about, those of us who, whose parents came late fifties, early sixties, is roughly considered the first Black British born, and then those of us who are then LGBT and then the first Black British born out generation. So the archive covers roughly, I'm your late seventies, early eighties, and then your nineties, right? Mainly that's that's it so far. And then archive, I'm I'm. For me, is I'm not just about collecting, preserving. I'm a black, queer British, British experience experiences. For me, the archive is is a, a space where I then work out my own kind of ideas around this thing called the archive. And that then brings in things around touch and texture, materiality and smells. What else? Can the archive do? How else are we thinking and rethinking and um, the archive? So then actually, I'm, I'm, how I'm and then because then the, the archives are then based on some notion of truth or a fact, a like idea that we could then they think about then the archive in terms of pleasure and erotic fiction, mm, myth making, yes. gossip, essay And then also then how then not um, everything about black queer experiences can be archived. Mm-hmm. Let's say, and and we could talk about the nightclub and we could talk about the music and we could talk about how people are dressed. Mm. But then actually, we cannot always talk about desire mm-hmm. or the dance floor, the sweat, and then all those kind of rituals. Or whatever. And so the archive is then to then ask these other kind of questions around this thing and call the archive. Mm-hmm. And... And for me then, key is that the archive is then not about the past, the archive is about the future. So in actually the archive is kind of like breadcrumbs for those Black queers not yet born and yet to come, just so that they can get a sense of this particular moment that we existed. So then actually I could move in between the physical archive and the conceptual theoretical archive and then either move in between both those kind of iron spaces. And but key is how do we talk about the archive itself mm. from within the archive and not always from outside the archive. Because actually the iron archive, as in constantly, it, it constantly has to be unfolding itself. It's got to be alive. And then this thing comes out of Stuart Hall's work.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> and so once again, that then is another manifesto and that the archive is built around, that the archive is uncanny, it's living, it's breathing. And then, and then basically, I just hope then, in centuries down the line, there's these other conversations around this thing called the archive. Yeah. A lot of my thinking is around that our black and brown and queer experiences is is I'm usually looked through a social cultural lens. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah? A lot of our black and brown and queer politics is around what is done to black and brown bodies mm-hmm. and we should always have those politics and also i'm saying what is it that we want to be done and wither through our own black bodies and then that's then a different move yeah mm-hmm. and and for me if we keep talking uh, about let's say the archive and systems of dominance and so on and so forth we actually don't talk about the archive yeah right right if we then talk about the photograph and then get locked into content and representation we don't talk about the photograph yeah and for me then this is then where ideas around pleasure and erotic and joy comes in it's got the key to making something whether it's an archive from scratch or photograph key is process and, and that means actually if i then touch the flyer from the first and national only black gamers conference, the flyer also touches me mm-hmm. and that means that we have to then and have a different conversation about the archive mm-hmm. right yeah because basically actually and for me then if the archives are then placed to hold memories of of some shape or some form right here, I would argue then that the black queer body is the archive mm-hmm. because actually our bodies also hold memories. And for me, then there is something for me that's frustrating is when most of the conversations around social justice work excludes pleasure, Mm. excludes joy, excludes the erotic. Yeah. And then why is that, right? And then why then is people doing, 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 doing work Around social justice work, right? Yeah, who are they? black and queer, don't talk about pleasure and erotic. Yeah. So then, what kind of queer are we then talking about? A desexual queer? Yeah. And then, actually, a lot of queer politics don't talk about sex anyway. Right. <laughs> and I'm saying, why is this happening?
0: Yeah, and it's not arbitrary, it's, it's set up in a, it, for a reason. You know, it's, it's like um, Tony Morrison saying the function of racism is to waste your time. It's like it, you, you, the more that you kind of position yourself against something, the more than that thing then becomes defines you and defines yes. how who yes. you are and what you are. And then yes. it's like, hang on, what what about the person and the people that we yes. could be if we were allowed to stop thinking about yes. the archive, yes. the institution, yes. Yes. the dominant power structure, and instead think about what it feels to be touched and to be yes. to be seen as beautiful and to be seen as powerful yes. and to yes. be felt as, yes. as someone who belongs yes. and all of these things and yeah, yeah you're right there those are denied yeah. for us yeah. by yeah. those yeah. discourses yeah. yeah
2: many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care
1: I
0: wanted to ask you a bit more about your relationship to and, and the the impact of Rotimi Fanny Coyote and and Maud Saltler's Salters uh work on your work because seeing you as as a black queer artist, yeah. seeing your work has been really empowering. Speaking to you has been really empowering. And now you are an archive that holds the the feeling that came from meeting those two artists who've now passed away. Yeah. So it feels like a really good opportunity to talk about what what the impact of being in a physical space with, with Rotimi and Maud was like. I have
2: in my archive these out-of-focus portraits and topless shots I took of Rotimi, to And so so I I used to I shoot my work and then I then go over to his house and kind of show him what I was doing. Yeah. And AM he was I'm very supportive and and I I was then able to I see the, the books that he had on Yoruba culture, Renaissance art, surrealism, and then just talk about what he was drawing from as well. Mm. And, and so i through him. I then joined the Brixton artists collective, which I then joined in 1989, 1990. And so I'm, he was just pivotal. Mm-hmm. I think to like seeing a black queer photographer doing work around the black male body and then also then being aware of the challenges that he was going through in terms of then not then being uh, having access to shows and blah 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 so then once again I was privy to his challenges around doing sexual work mm-hmm. and um, that was Timmy I'm you know he was a fine fine ass tall Brother walking walk in Brixton with his dreadlock, round glasses, white shirt, leather trousers in Brixton. Nice. And you know, just with this confidence, which is confidence.
0: So he was hot. <laughs> <laughs> final final question. Um, you, I know that I feel like Essex Hemphill is also oh my featured in your work, and his poetry is like. His poetry is like electricity it's like so em- empowering and and beyond empowering like yeah it, it has essential energy which I feel like we've been talking about in th- in this conversation. Uh, did you you met so you met him right Yes yeah, so obviously um, Essex was one of my loves
2: so um, I was working at the Black Art gallery when I he was doing his his tour um, the identities tour. And uh, his last gig in London was March the 24th, 1992. And myself and Dirk, our britches, went to pick up Essex from the airport. Cool. And so his like, first gig in Brixton that night was in Burnies Grove. And so he's on the stage talking. I'm in the back. He's staring at me. And I'm like, why is Essex m staring at me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because you're hot. I mean, look at this picture. <laughs> he's staring at me. And so basically we I then and so I then went around with him to various gigs. And then my first trip to the States was in July 1992 to see Essex. We were talking about doing a joint project um, and with his poetry and some of my work. And then actually the the thing that I thank him for, it was I'm I'm here and kinda of like linked me into some of the black gay press stateside and that's why some of my early work appears in some of the black gay press stateside right I'm what I take away from Essex and lots of
0: your activists from that period is that they were not afraid of being sexual mm. you but know I feel like it's been formalised and institutionalised and professionalised now everyone wants to have a job in the institution so they're they're afraid of being sexy and being sexual and being a human because they want to be a professional exactly and of course, professionals still need dick and vagina. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm exactly. Just <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You don't, you don't become like a a robot, like a desexualized robot, because you've got a, a you know a job in the institution, no, you and don't. and yet this. I'm the best. I think that you probably need it more. Yeah. It's because
2: you're in the institution. Exactly. That's just my. Philosophy. You need to be replenished somehow. You, you need to be replenished.
0: <laughs> Audre Lord was right. You, I need to be replenished. Exactly. Yeah. It's really great to be in your studio and also just to be in your presence. I feel like we've touched on this in conversations about you meeting Maud Salter, you meeting Rasimi Fanakodi, you and your relationship with Essex Hempel. But I feel like being in the presence of artists whose work is powerful, especially black queer artists, is is replenishing. Um, So it feels really, really, you know, I forgot that you are an archive and that actually... Our interactions are an archive, and that you recommending me the the the, the text uh, constituting the archive by Stuart Hall became the, like the foundational thing in not just my PhD, but also in in loads of the murals that I'm painting and and the work that I'm making. So it's like our interaction in itself is an archive that that comes to life, you know, when when we're in each other's presence. So I'm really grateful for that. I'm really really grateful for this opportunity to kind of access. The archive that exists between between us if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense
1: Hey Jacob, how you doing? I'm good, thanks. You just come from seeing a Jarmu, mm-hmm. right? Which is literally just down the road from my house where we are now on Railton Road, which is like filled with queer history, this street mm-hmm. is, and this house alone. Do you know Brixton? Yeah, yeah, and I
0: painted the mural up the road that's about the history of this road, so I know a lot about Railton Road specifically.
1: Oh, fantastic. Well, you know, where I'm living right now is a kind of queer housing co op, and the reason I, I'm, I'm really proud of living here. Not part, just because of that history, but like wrote Timmy Fanny Coyote, mm-hmm. lived here, one of our elders and a great artist who I'm sure you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's a huge influence in my work. Oh, fantastic. So um, so tell me, you've been to see Ajamu today. How was that? It was great. It was really great. Ajamu is a,
0: is a mentor to me and he is an archive. Every time I meet with him, it's like all of these different things bubble up, these kind of bodily, spiritual... Um, erotic things in terms of the the knowledges that he holds and also the kind of the things that he teases out of people
1: I mean Ajamu a is great at doing that isn't he? every time I bump into a jamu on this road which is usually two or three times a week I can guarantee the word archive will be in our conversation and I guess he's the same with you right
0: yeah, from, from his work with the Ruckus Archive to just the photography that he does to the way he is and the, the questions that he asks, it's always about archiving and a sensitivity and, uh, and a care around histories.
1: So he's a mentor to you currently. Was there anything new that you learned today in your conversation?
0: Yeah, so much, so much. Um, there was so much that I learned today from talking to Ajamu, but I think that a lot of it is it's more of a set of questions that he's planted in my head again around what happens when black queer people meet and what kind of power we're able to cultivate between us and what kind of what kind of dialogues have we been denied and how do we not end up speaking about the institution or the archive or oppression but instead find out what makes the other person feel good you know what you know what what is the sensual relationship what is the the joyous pleasurable relationship that exists between us as black queer people because that obviously often gets left out of the conversation we're often expected to exist as non-sexual beings um especially in the professional capacity of like the institution and academia and in the art world so it's just a kind of reminder to 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 be comfortable in my body and a reminder to kind of facilitate space for other people to exist as sexual beings um as as people who are capable and deserving of touch and pleasure and joy and dick and 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 vagina as as Ajamu said
1: <laughs> 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 that we all need you know <laughs> i mean ajamu I've worked for Jarmu a lot over the years on lots of different projects and I work in sexual health and health promotion. And the Jarmu is always telling me where is the pleasure Mm. in your work? Where is the joy in your work? How do you demonstrate the joy and pleasure in your work? And how has the Jarmu maybe influenced you to do that? It's so funny that you
0: said that because he he said the same thing to me. and, And it's one of the things I spoke about, um, uh, that question of, of how is the where is the pleasure and where is the joy so for me I think as an artist who makes work about black history and queer history specifically black queer history and anti-colonial history in general um I always now try to make sure that there is an element of joy um in the work because for me the act of painting or, or doing illustration or writing poetry is is joyful um but unfortunately the way that people have been remembered, specifically like a lot of black women are remembered because they were martyrs, because they died fighting, you know, the British empire or the Spanish empire or the French empire. And I think that there is so much history, which is so dark and so upsetting. And you want to remember those people, but you also don't want the work to only be about that. So Afrofuturism is a big part of my work and has been over the last seven years. And I feel feel like Ajamu has been part of the 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 force which has pushed me in that direction because fantasy and the imagination are ways that histories, which are very disturbing can be imbued with joy and with pleasure. So the poetry that I've been writing over the last year in my new book, which is called bad drawings of paradise and the murals and the comics and artworks I've been making, they always have an element of, um, of, uh, science fiction of, of, uh, futurity and, and if, if there's no joy to be had, then I have to put some joy in there because we've been denied joy so much. So I feel like that really comes from Ajamu and him asking me that same question. Where is the joy? Where's the sensuality? OK, yes, we, we need to know about these histories, but also where's the joy? So it makes me so happy to hear that he's asking you that and you're thinking about that in terms of sexual health as well. Because we've all been denied joy. We've all been denied sensuality and in it, and it, and nothing is sustainable without joy. Nothing is sustainable without sensuality.
1: I mean, I totally agree with you. You And I'm constantly striving to put more of that in my work and to be alert to it. So the picture that was taken that we're looking back on is almost 40 years ago now. When I look around the world we occupy, I see so many more Ajamu's now. Mm. I see so many more people owning and being their authentic selves and stepping out into the world. Do you see that? And what do you think has changed in those 30 odd years.
0: I think that there's many things which have changed. I think that black queer people are always at the forefront of culture, especially people in the diaspora, because when you don't have access, when you've been displaced from a big, well-grounded historical well of cultural identity, when you've been displaced from that by 500 years of slavery and imperialism, um, or hetero that's telling you you're not allowed to be the person you are, then you have to re- reinvent yourself. You have to decide, okay, well, I can't be this and I can't be that. So what am I going to be? I have to figure it out. So I think people like Ajamu are always at the forefront because, and, and queer people of colour and queer black diasporic people in general, because, yeah, we have to decide who we are for ourselves because often we don't have um, people showing us how to do it. Of course, we always have done and there always have been black queer people. Um, they've just not been given the same kind of space or, or, or given the same kind of respect or or, or, or seen as um, being people that we should aspire to be. Like, I think that is 100% changing now. I think people like Little Nas X. Um, I did a residency at the Tate Modern a few years ago and which is a school's residency. So, so there's lots of schools coming in and seeing like tons of kids dancing to Little Nas X, an out black gay man, seeing a whole school class of predominantly black children screaming the words of like an out black gay man. That feels radical to me. And like, I definitely didn't have that when I was at school, not even a teenager, let alone in primary school. So I'm hoping that things are actually changing and that we don't have to feel this responsibility, this burden of respons- of representation on our shoulders that we have to kind of be examples, because I feel like now there are so many examples
1: of black queerness in, in all of its different ways. Jarmu has always existed outside of the institution, outside of academia, to some extent. He's, he's marched his own path. And as he's got older, his work has allowed him to do that. Where do you think we sit now as black queer folk within the institution, within academia?
0: I think that hopefully people like Ajamu who dropped out of, of university and now now he's doing a PhD and now he's a lecturer and stuff, but also he dropped out, which the same as Stuart Hall. Stuart Hall also um, didn't finish his PhD. And I think that hopefully people like Ajamu will remind us that the institution is not the only way to become the people that we want to become. And I have a degree of hopefulness about the level of disillusionment that i see in young people today because i think it's not very um i don't think it's it's the institution is not going to save us basically and i think that it's a lie and it's it's a, it's a trick that we've been we we've, we've been indoctrinated to think that everything will be fine if we can just get a comfortable job within the institution. And one of the things that Ajami mentioned is the way that that professionalization takes away our capacity to be sexual beings. It takes away our capacity to be problematic and and, um, experiment because, you know, we all have to make mistakes. We all have to do something that we shouldn't do to figure out who we are. But if we're too busy trying to assimilate into the institution so we can get a seat at the table, which was built from our exploitation and has never been really about serving us or making us feel happy, then we lose a part of ourselves. So I think two things can exist at the same time. Yes, we should be comfortable in the institution. We deserve a space and we deserve a claim to all of these institutions, you know, just because we are here to, to quote, quote Rihanna Jade Parker, who once said that we deserve, we deserve a space in these institutions just because we're here. That's it. We don't have to defend that. Um, But also we deserve something better and we deserve space to imagine what else could exist um, because we know that these institutions at the end of the day aren't going to save us.
1: Mm. I came across a quote last week. Um, I think it can be attributed to Malcolm X. We should check. But it was be careful when you get a seat at the table because you're going to have to eat the same meal yeah exactly,
0: and maybe we don't want to eat that food, you know, um I did a workshop um responding to labana himid's work with with uh primary school kids in uh Peckham, and Labana himid's piece we will be is is a picture of a woman with her arms folded, giving side eye, and her dress <laughs> is covered in pictures of English food with the word no, 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 no crossed out, and the kids were like, We think that this is her saying that she doesn't like bland food. Maybe she wants something else. And th- that piece also says on it, which the kids read out at the top of their voices, we will be who we want, where we want. And the time is now and the place is here, 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 now, now, now. now." Which I don't know. I just think that's another example of like black queer archival power going into the next generation of young people. Um, and straight away, they saw that. They were that predominantly black children, saw that piece and like, this is about, we don't want to eat this food. <laughs> we want something
1: better. <laughs> yeah, let's bring that food to the table. Yeah, and and so you know, Jammu, you've you've worked too. But was there anything about your conversation that you find you found challenging or just interesting? There was nothing challenging
0: about it. I mean, I guess in a way, it was it was more that the society we live we live in continually indoctrinates us to forget the power. Of um, sensuality and and all of these things, but also I forgot that Ajamu is the person who recommended the text um, "Constituting the Archive" by Stuart Hall, which is foundational to my PhD. Um, and I don't know what that is, so it, you know, it, it didn't, it wasn't challenging, but it challenged me to to remember how important Ajamu is to me and how Im- important he's been in kind of like creating a a framework for me to think about the world. And I don't know why, um, I don't know why I'd forgot that it was him who told me about that text. And I'm definitely gonna be hanging, you know, trying to connect with him more to talk to him and and, and kind of utilize the well of information that, that he has. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the pandemic over the last two years, but I think I've I've forgotten how much I get from speaking to, to elders, um, especially black queer elders. So it, it challenged me to kind of like not waste. Um the opportunity of, of actually speaking to, to Ajamu and 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 people from his generation.
1: Brown skin beauty. Fair, fine future. I've been your host, Mark Thompson. The reporter in this episode was Jacob V. Joyce. You can find the picture we've discussed in today's episode and all the images talked about throughout this podcast on Instagram at Black and Gay Back in the Day. And drop us a message if you have something you want to submit to the archive. A link will be available in the show notes. Coming up next week on Black and Gay Back in the Day,
2: it's weird because usually when I meet people I haven't already seen them in Speedos but in your case I have already (laughs) seen you in Speedos but from like 10 years before I was born
1: Black and Gay Back in the Day is an Aunt Nell production based on the archive created by myself and Jason Okandeya. it is produced by Shivani Dave and Tash Walker and the assistant producer is Abby McIntosh mixing was by Adam Smith and the music was composed and performed by Amaru. Artwork was by Kemi Oliede. The executive producers were myself and the ArtNail team. Thanks to Content is Queen, The Glasshouse, The Audio Content Fund, Gadeo, The Bishopsgate Institute, and all of our contributors. A special thank you to all of those past and present who have fought for black queer liberation.
2: Powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
1: Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jessie
2: Cruikshank.
1: I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl.